And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. May the Lord bless us, give us understanding from his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, you have promised that your word does not come back empty, that its intended purpose is always carried out in those who hear. We pray to you and we come clinging to that promise, for we are a people in need of your spirit, your work within our hearts and in our lives. We pray that we would be a people that are not merely informed by your word, but we are formed by it, that it would shape the way we see and think and therefore do, that it would help us to understand how we may give you honor and glory, bring you pleasure. We may understand how we may walk in ways that are right. Lord, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would be at work within us, opening our hearts and our eyes, that we may see what you would have us to see, that we may confess what we need to confess, that we may be comforted where we are in need of comfort, and that our love for you may grow as we realize that your instruction to us to not lean on our own understanding, seek your wisdom, is advice that is expressed out of a heart filled with love that we cannot fathom. Father, engulf us in your love. Speak to us now. We pray in the name of he who is the word incarnated, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. No doubt most of you are familiar with the old story sociologists tell about the three blind men and the elephant. There are three blind men who are told that in their presence was an elephant. Each of them had been told of elephants but never had come into contact with one. And so each wanted to have more than just an understanding that there are such creatures as an elephant. They wanted to understand what an elephant was like more than simply something large. The first man went to the elephant and he grabbed a hold of one of the legs. And he said, oh, an elephant must be like an old oak because it is thick and it is rough. The second man went and he grabbed a hold of the tail and he said, no, an elephant must be like a snake because it's long and it's windy. And the third man went and touching the body of the elephant said, no, an elephant must be like a boulder on the mountainside because it, it is large and immovable and hard. Now, 
that's a familiar story. I was not as familiar with the fact that the story has also been told in reverse of three blind elephants that wanted to discover what man was like. The first elephant went and put his paw on the man and came back and told the others, I believe man is flat. And the second one went, did the same thing, and came back and said, I believe you're right. <laughs> Bad jokes aside, the purpose of the story that sociologists and psychologists share this for is to help us, to help to illustrate the fact that each of us experiences things differently. And that each of our own experiences shapes our own perception of reality. It's what makes perspective to be an important thing, not just in some areas of our life, but in every area of our life. Because perspective help us to explain not only why we see things differently, but it also is a reminder to us that we rarely see all that we need to see to know what, what truth is. And that's important because our lives are really lived out in response to our perception of reality. Whatever we see is real, we, we react to what we believe is real. And so therefore, it's vitally important for us to have a perspective that most closely matches reality. Isaiah 6 is an important passage for us. It provides a great perspective shaper for us. It's a picture of Isaiah who's being called by God to be a prophet to his people, to record what God was going to do, to herald what God would do, and to explain uh, what God was like in the unusual time in Israel's history. As you've been studying this, uh, these number of weeks with us throughout the Old Testament, you know the story of Israel. God has called a people from among the nations to be his own that he's promised to bless. And he's promised them over and over again, I will bless you, I will provide for you, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will give you instructions and ways that you are to live and as you follow those ways, you will find yourself prospering and I will always be with you. He provided for them the promised land, which was almost paradise. Told them to go in, to rid the land of all of its inhabitants and to dwell there as a distinct nation so that all the other nations of the earth would be able to see how they were living and how they were prospering and then look to their God as the one to whom they would trust and be drawn to them. And yet, as we've seen time and again, Israel is marked more by, by faithlessness and by rebellion than they are by consistency of faithfulness. And yet God continues to pour out his love upon his people, reminding us that God never forsakes those who belong to him. And yet we've come to a turning point. The point of Israel, they've already just passed their, their high point in history. The time of Saul and David and somewhat during Solomon was the apex. It was the Camelot of all of Old Testament history. Things were as good as they were going to get. Even though the people were not perfect by any stretch, that was as, as, as good as, as the people would be. Now after Solomon's time had come, a series of other kings had come into the land. The kingdom divides and most of the kings were corrupt. People continued to live in rebellion and the Lord is bringing judgment upon his people here at this point, and he's raising up Isaiah to declare the judgment that would come and to also give the people a perspective of who God is that would carry them through in the exile that God was sending them to. It's an interesting paradox that's taking place. The Lord re re refers to himself as, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, and yet here in this passage, the Lord is preparing to send the people back into slavery. 
and not just back into slavery anywhere. And an interesting paradox is God is sending them to Babylon, which is the very area from where he called Abram in the first place. And so he raises up Isaiah as one who would be able to offer perspective to the people, his people, who he still loves, and yet who judgment is being brought upon, the promise that God is still working out his purpose, that these people would still be a blessing to all the nations, and yet they themselves would not feel like they are blessed. As we look at this particular passage, there are three perspectives that I think are important for us uh, to, uh, to embrace particularly if we feel like we are in unstable times or in a time of uncertainty, whether it's cultural or whether it's personal. The perspectives that Isaiah offers, the perspectives that Isaiah learned, are important for us to adopt into our lives in order that we would be a people that would live in response to reality rather than our limited perception of reality. The first perception or the first, uh, uh, perception or the first um, aspect of, uh, that we need to see is we need to have a vision of who God is. Now in our text in verse 1, it begins this, in the year King Uzziah died. Now in some senses that may seem to be somewhat of a, tri- a, trivial, a trivial detail. Maybe there simply so we have some idea of the historicity of this or some point and understand when it's there. But we easily gloss over that because it doesn't seem to be a particularly important detail to us but to... Isaiah, it was a very important detail. It was a very personal detail. See, Uzziah was one of the rare good kings that Israel had. After the kingdom had divided, if you look at the number of kings that they had, both in the north and the southern part of the the kingdoms, uh, there were very few that would have been considered good kings. But during Uzziah's reign, he had brought about the spiritual renewal. He was committed. The people were faithful, and there was also economic prosperity. So it was as good as people could hope for. Now he's gone, and looking at all the other prospects and the history of the kings that they have had, it would be very easy for somebody to wonder, are we going to get another good king, or are we going to get a bad king? Are we going to get one that's going to continue with these policies? so that we prosper and that we seek after God? Or are we going to get one who chases after other things or seeks his own glory and plunges us into economic disaster and faithlessness in our relationship to God? Nobody knew. And if the loss of a good king wasn't enough, this loss was not just a matter of circumstance for Isaiah, it was also deeply personal. Because many scholars tell us that in addition to being a good king, Uzziah was also Isaiah's uncle. That Isaiah's father was the brother of the king. And so Isaiah finds himself at this point in time of, of instability in, in a lot of areas in his own life. He's not sure what's going to happen in the culture. Things don't necessarily look good. And at the same time, he's experiencing the loss of his favorite uncle. He's experiencing loss and, and, and hardship in, in a number of different elements, aspects. But it's interesting because in the year King Isaiah died, the first thing Isaiah see, sees is this, the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe fills the temple. He says, the Lord comes to Isaiah who is 
dealing with both his personal loss and his fear or discomfort of what's going on around him, the Lord says essentially to him this, yes, the king has died, and yet the king is on his throne. See, he wants Isaiah to adopt a perspective that is a constant reminder to him that regardless of how circumstances look and regardless of the personal loss or instability we may feel, God is in control. God is always in control. God is on his throne and not just seated there, but he is reigning and his glory continues to flow. It fills every aspect of our, our minds, our ability to comprehend. And that's a, a perspective that we need to embrace, whether we are experiencing uncertainty, whether we are on solid ground, because it's that understanding that God is sovereign, God is in control, God is on his throne, that helps us to be stable regardless of the circumstances that are around us. Then it's interesting, as having seen that, then Isaiah reveals what he's seen. He sees the seraphim. And he describes these angels, these angelic beings, and, uh, as to both in their appearance and, and what they're doing. And it's not an incidental thing that he's describing. In fact, there's something that's important here, an important principle for us to grasp, not only in terms of our vision for God, but how we grow and how we gain a, an appropriate vision of who God is. Because what Isaiah is describing here is he's watching these seraphim, and as they're worshiping, and as they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah is seeing what the seraphim see of God. Isaiah is hearing what the seraphim are saying about God. Isaiah is seeing how they relate to God and they respond to God. And therefore, he is seeing a part of God that he would perhaps not see on his own. Isaiah is revealing to us the importance of living our lives in community with other believers. Because there are some things that we learn about God. There are some things that we see about God that we only see through the eyes of others, through the actions of others, that we may never see on our own. And even if we know the truths, we may not see them with the same type of clarity or the same focus that we see through the other people. What Isaiah is saying here is he's seeing the seraphim who are worshiping and they're responding to God. And as a result of seeing them, Isaiah is seeing aspects of God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, talks of a friendship that he had, a small group of sorts that he met regularly with, three friends, all of whom were writers, all of whom were believers. They met together to encourage one another, both in their work and in their, in their lives. And then one of them died. And as tragic as it is to lose anyone that is close to you, C.S. Lewis, as he's explaining this, he, he says that they were, they were doubly impoverished at the passing of their friend. His reason for that is because he said that with his friend, not only was he gone, but what he brought out of his, the others was also gone. He says that even though there were still three of them together, and there was one last. And you could look at it and say, well, since there's only three of us now, we can pour ourselves and in, in, in be into each other, and we can have more of each other because there's less of us to spread around. C.S. Lewis said that that's not how things really work. He said that each of us is uniquely created so that those that we encounter respond, and we draw things out of each other that nobody else can draw. And so the friend who had departed drew certain characteristics out of each of the others that was only evident in his presence. 
The others were able to observe it, but only as they were relating to the friend who had now gone. And with him gone, those characteristics were no longer being drawn out, and so no longer the, and so Lewis's were doubly impoverished. I don't have more of my friends, I have less of my friends because I no longer have that part that the departed one brought out. It's important that we understand what he's saying because it is related to what Isaiah is saying here. You and I are created for community. And while we tend to think that our spiritual life gets in order when we can get away and isolate ourselves and, and just spend time, just me and God, more often in the scripture we see the importance of being with other believers, committing ourselves to invest in one another's lives, speaking truth and love to one another, and gathering together for worship. It's because each of you who is here brings something unique. And as others around you see the way that you worship, the way that you respond to God, the way that you relate to God, they're able to see things about God that perhaps they would have overlooked, things that they weren't thinking about, things they may never have seen before. And while we're prone to think that if I choose to not come and be involved in a, a small group or in a community of faith or gather for worship, that's just my choice. I know that I would be unwise to make that my practice, but I'm only hurting myself, so if from time to time if I, I make that decision, you know, that's a loss I'll just have to embrace. The truth of the matter is, is it's not only your loss, it's the loss that's stealing from everybody else who is part of the community that God has gathered together. Because you bring something valuable, you bring something unique, and you bring something out of everybody else who's around you, whether you're aware of it or not. Isaiah is seeing that as the seraphim, the importance of community, and the seraphim of showing to him and pointing to him, and they're declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, drawing attention to the holiness of God. Now, I, I doubt that this was the first time that Isaiah had thought about the holiness of God. Certainly, he knew that the Lord was holy. The Lord has declared himself holy. He's shown himself holy throughout all of history. Isaiah, being a faithful and godly man, knew of the holiness of God. And yet, there's something here that would have caught his attention. I call it a Hebrew highlight. In our culture, when we want to draw attention to something that we've written, we tend to put things in all caps or we embolden things. Sociologists, psychologists say that when you send an email in all caps, you're screaming. I'm not sure why that makes somebody screaming, but that's what they tell us. Some of us scream at times, and some of us seem to scream all the time um, in everything that is sent out. But we, we, we highlight, we embolden things, or we, we make all caps because we want to draw attention to a certain word or to a certain phrase so that people will look at it, they'll take notice, and they'll think about what we found to be important. Well, in Hebrew, they didn't have that capacity to embolden or to highlight or put in all caps. What they did is they would repeat words. If something was important, they would repeat the word. Jesus picked this up in his own teaching. You hear Jesus saying, truly, truly, or verily, verily, meaning veritas. But this is truth. It's not just a matter of true truth. He's not saying this is true truth. There's, there's no such thing as false truth. That's an oxymoron. When he says these things, truly, truly, he's bringing attention. This is important. Look at this. He's highlighting, he's emphasizing it by the repetition of words. That's part of Jesus' teaching technique. And here the seraphim were not doubling, they were tripling. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah, seeing that, his attention drawn to that, would stop, no doubt, and ponder the holiness of God, realizing this is something for me to think about. This is something for me to consider in my understanding of who God is and my vision of God. 
What's interesting about the fact that the seraphim were declaring the holiness of God and calling Isaiah to recognize the holiness of God is that holiness is the only aspect of God's character that does not encourage us to draw near to him, draw into his presence. It's the only attribute that doesn't actually benefit us in some corresponding way. We think about all of God's attributes, every other one benefits us in some way and then encourages us to come near him. Think of the love of God. Well, I'm in need of being loved. So the fact that God loves me and he's demonstrated his love for me and he's promised to never stop loving me even though I, I don't deserve to be loved, that's something that I benefit from. I benefit from his love, the tangible expressions of his love, and the security that I have in his love. Even something like God's power, as awesome, as intimidating as that can be, it actually provides comfort. We've seen expressions of just the breath of God's power through the tornadoes or hurricanes. They're just mere expressions of the power of God, realizing God has more power than they do, as, as awesome as that is. It'd be intimidating to look at the power of God, except that we realize that when we have come to Jesus Christ, we are now his children, and all the power of God is used to comfort and to protect is used on our behalf. And so the power of God, intimidating as it can be, is also tremendously comfort. And if you look at all the attributes of God, every one of them has some corresponding benefit to us, except holiness. Holiness is the expression of God's purity, his perfection, his otherness, something that he's different. And when we see such perfection, such beauty, it actually draws attention to our flaws, to our shortcomings, rather than making us feel good about who we are. Think about it in this way. When you think about something that is beautiful and pure and spotless, how do you respond? Think about going to a wedding. Perhaps you're invited to a, an 11 o'clock wedding on a Saturday morning. It's a nice day, so you decide to get up early and you mow the lawn, do a little bit of weeding, and then you realize, oh, it's 10.45. I need to be at the wedding. Not wanting to be late to the wedding, you jump up immediately from your garden. You jump in the car, drive over to the church, and you walk in to these doors just as the bride is standing there with her father getting ready to walk up. And here's the bride in a radiant, white, spotless gown. And here are you in shorts, a ripped T-shirt, stained with grass, grass clippings along your leg. And as people stand up and they look back, they see the bride, and then they see you how do you feel if you're the one stained like that at that moment? It's not that there's anything inappropriate about being dressed that way. If you had gardened and done your, all the same things that morning, and then you were at Lowe's and I saw you at Lowe's, I wouldn't think anything of it. But standing next to the bride in her spotless gown, you start feeling insecure. You start realizing all of your blemishes. You become very self-conscious, realizing... Maybe I, I just, I don't fit in, and you want to kind of go away. The holiness of God is somewhat like that. When we see the holiness of God, it doesn't make us say, we need to go, but we, we see ourselves in light of the holiness of God, and it makes us very uncomfortable. We need to understand that we only gain, and that's the way, exactly how Isaiah was feeling at this time. He sees the holiness of God, and he becomes very self-conscious, that leads us to our, our second perspective. First perspective is that we need a vision of who God really is. The second perspective is this, is we need an accurate assessment of ourselves. Isaiah's response to the glory or to the, the holiness of God is interesting because he says, woe is me. 
Now, I'm familiar with the phrase, but if, really, I have no idea what woe is me means. I mean, it's just one of those phrases you grow up with. I do know this, is that the word woe itself, we know if somebody says they're woeful, we know they have problems. We know that when Jesus used this word, he uses it really somewhat like a curse, because when Jesus would talk to those who were rejecting the kingdom of God that was at hand, he said, woe to those who do not believe. In other words, there's essentially there's a curse, there's problems. People who are full of woe, they, they have problems. And Isaiah says, not just I have problems, he said, I am the problem. Woe is me. I'm cursed. I'm undone. I'm broken. I mean, he, is, he, just, he just really feels significantly inadequate. He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, I've heard teachers at times look at this passage and say, what a, what a godly man. I mean, he looked at his whole life, and the only thing he could come up with is he's a man of unclean lips and lives amongst unclean people. I think more realistically, we look at this in Isaiah. If nothing else, he's just beginning, and he's saying, if nothing else, if there's no other flaw within me, you know, I, I, I cuss like a sailor. His language was unbecoming of God. Whether or not he was really fit that stereotype or whether he just realized he was far more like that and depraved than he was like the holiness of God, and, and he just was speaking. This is not a man who was speaking out of humility. This is a man who was speaking out of, of total brokenness. He became very very well aware of his own shortcomings. Second perspective is that we need to have an accurate assessment of ourselves, but an accurate assessment begins when we compare ourselves with something that is greater or better than we are. See, most of us are prone to compare ourselves to people that we can measure up with fairly well. Now, some who are a little more humble than others will throw people who are a little smarter, a little better looking, a little more successful into the random sample. Not too many, but they'll throw a few in there so that we don't look like we're always coming out on top. But if you were to look at it and ask most people or watch most people about how they stack up, we usually grade ourselves pretty, pretty, pretty well along the curve. We may not be the best head of the class, but we're, we're at least in the running. And the people who don't do that in our culture tend to find themselves depressed in, in counseling. But we tend to measure ourselves versus things that we know that we can measure up against. But the only way that we really get a real perception of ourselves is if we measure ourselves against something that is great, something that is greater, better than we are. I had that stark reality hit me literally when I was in college. Some of you know that I enjoyed and had a little bit of success when I was playing football in high school. And I was blessed to have been a little bigger and a little faster and a little stronger than most of the other guys around Nashville. And so it was a game that I enjoyed and, and did all right with. And as a quarterback, one of the favorite things I would had to do was run an option play. For those of you who don't like football, or just bear with me. But I have to explain just for a second. An option is when the quarterback runs one side or the other, and it depends on, depending on what the defense does, whether he keeps the ball and runs, or whether he pitches it to somebody else. And as a quarterback, as a, as a selfish individual, I love to run the ball rather than give it to somebody else. So while I was in high school, anybody that was a defender would turn and make me pitch the ball. I would do what I was supposed to do, but then I would lower my shoulder and just jam it into the guy's chest. Every time I had the opportunity, play after play, I would pitch and jam him in the chest. And since I was usually a little bigger or at least the same size, but I had a running start, eventually they would kind of back off and go play with the other guy and let me have my fun. It was a good arrangement. The first scrimmage I was in in college, coach calls an option play. I was excited. I love running the option plays. I remember it vividly. I turned, took off to my right, 
wanting and hoping that I'd be able to run and knowing what my pattern was if I didn't get to run. The difference was none of the guys from my high school experience were there. I ran into a guy named Mike Kofer, six foot five, 240 pounds with a 31-inch waist. Spent 10 years with the Lions, four-time pro bowler, and sometimes you can see him in some old B-movies where he's like the centurion, the guards, the ones that just stand there and their presence is physically intimidating, and that's in Hollywood movies. Mike Kofer was the end who turned and I had to pitch the ball. And so as I'd always done, I lowered, pitched the ball, lowered my shoulder, jammed it into his chest, and he didn't even feel it. And then he picks me up off the ground and somehow plants me into the ground face first so that when I come up, I have a divot of grass in my face mask. And I wake up. I wasn't actually unconscious, but I realized and identified more than ever with the Wizard of Oz when I was thinking, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. And I realized I had run into somebody who shows that I had serious limitations. I was nowhere near as good as this guy or many of the other guys that were on that team. And I began to wonder, do I really even belong here? See, when you run into something that is better, something that is greater than you, you begin to look at yourself in a whole new way. And your inadequacies and your shortcomings become to the forefront. It's not just an experience that I have. It's everybody it's in some form or another at some point in life. You think about how many valedictorians go on to the university and find they're not the smartest kid in class. How many homecoming queens were the beauties of their town, but they get to a large school and they're not even noticed hardly. Wherever we are in life, when we find ourselves running into somebody who's better than us, we look at ourselves differently. We begin to take inventory of ourselves in a different way. And that's what's taking place here with Isaiah. He's seeing the holiness of God. He's not even comparing himself to somebody who's just better than himself. He's, he's seeing the holiness of God, and he realizes he doesn't measure up. And rather just dismissing it, as some of us might be inclined to do, by saying, well, but who measures up with God? and then start looking for some other more reasonable people to compare himself to. This really bothers Isaiah. I mean, he's broken, and that's why he says, look, I'm undone. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not worthy. And so he's sitting there in his brokenness because he's taken an assessment of himself. Now, that in itself is not good news, but what happens here is really amazing because as Isaiah is sitting there in his brokenness, having taken an inventory of himself as all he has to offer, and realizing he comes up short, so short that he can't even measure it, it's the seraphim comes to him then and has a coal, which represents the Lord's judgment, and takes the coal and he touches it to the very place that Isaiah said that he was impure. And his words to Isaiah at that point were saying, your sin has been atoned for and your guilt has been forgiven. He's been declared holy. By God, through God's messenger, the means of, of, the, of the application of the judgment taken from the altar. And Isaiah later goes on throughout this letter and he explains that anybody who is in Christ Jesus has that same thing that takes place. When we, at the very point of our brokenness, at the very point of our recognizing that we are not worthy, we do not measure up, we don't even really belong. God touches us at that place and says, not you are wrong, you are right, but you are forgiven, you are made whole, you are made clean. It's the glory of the gospel that is demonstrated here in Isaiah that he is experiencing this. And Isaiah 
is revealing this to us and we are able to understand we need to have the same assessment that Isaiah had. We need to come to that point where we see the holiness of God and we realize we're nowhere near as good as we would like to think, but as the demonstration of the seraphim on our behalf is we are loved far more than you would even imagine. So the first two perceptions that we have are these. One is we need to have perspectives we need to have is one is a vision of who God really is and the second is an accurate assessment of, our, uh, of ourselves. Now that itself would be sufficient, but Isaiah actually offers us another perspective, something that we can incorporate into our lives. It is related, but it's also distinct. And the third perspective I would simply say is that it's something that we get only when we're engaged in mission. See, things look different when, we are on the, when, when they're in motion. If you look out your car window, if you look out the windshield, things look pastoral and gentle and, and, and seem stable. If you look out the side window, Things just zip by very differently. Things look different as you're driving than they do when you're walking. And the same is true for our spiritual lives. We see God and we see the world very differently when we are in motion, particularly when we are engaged in mission. And I say engaged in mission because the response to uh, Isaiah's brokenness and being made whole, the Lord speaks and, he, and the Lord says, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? In other words, the Lord has a mission, and he is looking for the one who he will send. It's not that the Lord didn't know who would go, but the Lord is giving Isaiah an opportunity, and Isaiah jumps at the opportunity, and he says, here am I, send me. Isaiah volunteers. It seems relatively somewhat noble because he hasn't even asked what the mission is. And when you look further and find out what the mission is, you may wonder about Isaiah's sanity. I, I certainly would. Because eventually when he, Isaiah says, here am I, send me. The Lord says, okay, here's your mission, and here's the verses that he reads. Here's what you're going to do. Go and say to these people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and then turn and be healed. So here's the mission. Isaiah, go out and preach, but nobody's going to respond. In fact, their ears are going to become hardened and dulled. They will not hear what you have to say. They're going to reject you. They're going to walk away. They're not going to experience any of this. Now, for me, I would say, well, what's the other option? Do we have any other mission trips available? This one doesn't seem to fit my gift mix. But Isaiah doesn't do that. Isaiah, interestingly, is on board with this mission, and he says, all right, and how long will I be on this trip? And the Lord says, let me tell you. He says, until cities lie in waste without inhabitants and houses are without people and the land is desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and, from, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And so Isaiah is enlisting himself in this mission that he's, not, that he's going to fail and when he asks how long and the Lord says, until there's no more people. And then he says, the Lord goes on from there and he says, and though there may be a tenth of the population still will remain in it, we'll burn it again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so the Lord is calling Isaiah to this mission, that he's going to fail and only will end when there's no people left. What would possibly possess somebody to engage in a mission like that? One is the grace that he's already received. I mean, recognizing that he has been declared right with God, that he has been experienced the grace and his love for God is tremendous and so he'll do what God wants him to do. 
And that's true for all of us as we see how much we've been loved. The gospel actually propels us out into mission that we'll do what God wants us to do, not because of duty, but because we love the Lord. But there's something else that Isaiah here is experiencing, and we see really through the rest of his letters, that's also important for us to understand. It's not just the grace he's experiencing, so he's going just out of gratitude. But Isaiah realizes a grace that will open his eyes to see more of the glory of God. He'll have a greater understanding of who God is if he engages in this mission than if he was to sit and wait at home. You see, as Isaiah goes out and declares the love of God, and then people do not respond. In fact, they respond with hostility. Isaiah is very likely to be like you and me, and he's going to come to a point where he's going to say, I've had enough of this. Look, I want to love these people, but enough is enough. And then he will remember the God who has been living and long-suffering, pouring out his love on a people who have been stiff-necked and rebellious against him continuously. And even now that he's sending them into exile as an expression of his judgment, he's still giving them a message of hope to promise them that he will never forsake them. And in engaging these people and coming to the end of his own resources, he begins to have an insight into the character and the nature of God that he would never have if he just sat back and studied his theology. He only understands when he realizes, I, I'm limited, God is not. God's love is so great, his long-suffering is so patient, and his perspective of God begins to change. It's true for every one of us. We gain greater understanding when we are in the game than we stand on the sidelines. God has called each of us to be engaged in mission, and the mission is certainly to call people to come to the Lord so that he would receive maximum glory, But your being called to mission is not a sacrifice. It is actually a grace to you. It's a grace to me to go that as we are faithful to whatever God is calling us to, whatever we're signed up for, and for your sake, I hope it's not the same one that Isaiah has. And if anybody's wondering, I don't feel like I have the same one that Isaiah has, at least not now. But I've had Isaiah's. I've been in Isaiah's church. But whatever God has called you to do, as you engage in it, your eyes will be open and your understanding of who God is will be tremendously enhanced. Grace not only forgives and restores, but grace builds. Your faith and your love for God will continue to increase. There's an old saying that says if your only tool is a hammer, you begin to see every problem looks like a nail. What that means is when we focus only on our limitations and we tend to make everything fit into what we already perceive. We are prone to look at God and have God fit into our perceptions, to let God fit into what we need, what we want. and We need to have an expanded perception. We need so to, not only because God is worthy to be seen for who he is, but because we are wired in such a way that we, we find joy only when we're doing what God wants us to do, and we are relating to him in the process of doing what we're called to do. In other words, while God receives glory when we see him for who he really is, we find the joy and the peace that we long for only when we're doing what God has called us to do. And when we're called to do, we do what we're supposed to do, we see God more clearly. So this morning, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you first to ask yourself about your perceptions of God, your perspective. Is your perspective in any way limited? What are the limitations? And then second, I want to challenge you to begin to apply these three perspectives of Isaiah to grow in your understanding, your vision of who God is. Grow in your ability to assess who you are in your own strength 
now according to the promises of God who you are in Christ. And engage in your mission so that your understanding of God will continue to increase all the more, which will shape your assessment of yourself and make your love for him grow all the more. May God give us the grace to have our eyes open, have our hearts expand, that we may receive the love of God more fully. Father, we do pray with thanksgiving that you have given us this word, not only to draw our attention to your glory, but to show us how we may grow in your grace and knowledge of, your Lord, of, our, of, your, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, speak to us, move us, bless us. We pray that we may be a blessing to you and to those to whom you will send us. We pray this in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.